Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Don't Fuck It Up with me, your host, Kyle. I just want to introduce you to our very special guest this week. You will know her from YouTube, also RuPaul's Drag Race Season 9. It is Charlie Hides. How are you? Hello, 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 hello. Hi, 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 hi. How are you coping <laughs> in quarantine currently? I'm, I'm coping very well because I'm with my best friend in the whole world. I'm like you. I'm in quarantine with my husband and my dog. And um, and James is my best friend. Prior to lockdown, we spent 23 hours a, a day together. <laughs> and now we spent 24 hours a day together. So we're not much has changed then. Uh, sorry? Not much not, has changed then. Not much has changed at all. Um, and uh, yeah, we've we've adapted. And my career is, has been all about adapting. My life has been adapting and changing. And um, yeah, we're coping. What we do with all our guests, we kind of want to go back right the way to the start of your career and find okay. out how everything started for you, essentially. Um, I know that you had done a bit of stand-up as a teenager, is that correct? I did, yeah. That's how I got started. Well, uh, going back to the very beginning, I come from a family of nine. I have five brothers and four sisters, so, so there's ten children all together. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm number seven. And my older brothers and sisters had all participated in school musicals um, and choir and everything. So it was, it was, it was just completely natural um, from a very young age for me to be in every production mm -hmm. um, in school. Um, we had a piano in the house. My brother played the piano. My mother was the head, the soloist in the church choir. And so um, it was completely natural. Uh, to be on stage and entertaining and my sister went on to be a Broadway actress and wow. and so I had that gene so by the time I was done with high school and then in my early years of, of university um, it was just it was just completely natural for me to try my hand at stand-up and I found I enjoy you know I was good at it and I found that I got attention pretty quickly I, I had a fake ID um, <laughs> So, and a couple of old timers thought I was cute. I didn't have to shave until I was like, you know, in my early 20s and I had a baby face. And they just yeah. thought it was, they were straight, but they just thought it was cute that this little, this little kid was trying to do stand-up. So they took me under the wing and they gave me guidance and um, helped me out and, uh, you know, told me when I was making big mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> and um, then later on when I started doing like, I did an act where I would I would do multiple characters and I would just like have a cigar and glasses to be an old guy or you know I would put on a fake mustache or just a quick wig change and and I invented this character called Candy Cane. She was originally like two minutes of the act, then three minutes, and five minutes, and seven minutes, and ten minutes of the mm -hmm. act. She just was the most popular this character. And one day somebody said, "Oh, could you come do this charity as that character?" And I said, "Well, I don't have." I had never done full drag, just throwing on this blonde wig. Yeah. And so um, I did drag, like full drag, had to buy the, you know, the, the shoes and the heels and the bra yes. and all that, and um, absolutely stormed it and loved every minute of it and thought, you know, great. And then I met my, my, um, my best friend, uh, my comedy partner, Brian, um, we were invited to do a couple of charity nights. This was in the 80s and all of our friends were dying of AIDS. Mm -hmm. And we were invited to do this charity night and we invented this team, Gina Germain and Candy Kane. And we, we started doing comedy together and um, 
we started doing little videos, which we would show to all of our friends, would shoot them in our house and then show them on the TV. And then, um, and uh, we then got asked, oh, could you, you know, do, I think it was St. Patrick's Day. Yeah, it was St. Patrick's Day. Uh, do a St. Patrick's Day show at the club oh. where, and we showed this, we, we filmed this video um, and we showed it and it was our first paying gig. The owner of the club was a friend and he said, you can take the door, take all the money off the door and I'll take all the booze. So when he told us that we could take the money from the door, we shot this like 19 minute epic video caper around Boston. We cast a lot of our friends as extras, knowing they would invite their friends to come see it and they would have to pay to get in. So anyway, it was a success. And that night uh, when, when the show was over and the party was over, a bunch of us went back to my place for an after party and the manager showed up half, you know, when the club closed, he showed up at like two in the morning and he said, come here into the bedroom with me. I said, well, why? And he said, he's just come here. And I, I thought he was offering me a line of Coke. <laughs> and he pulled out a water cash and he said, this is the money from the door. And I had I'd had so much fun, I had forgotten to get paid. And when I counted the money, it was more, it was like twice as much I, as, as I had made working a you know, nine to five job. Mm -hmm. So really quickly, <laughs> I quit my nine to five. I said, I'm doing that. <laughs> And that really, that's, that's how it got started, really. Just finding out that something I enjoyed that was fun, I could get paid for. So that was the birth of Charlie Hyde's? Well, at the time, I was, caught, I was doing this character called Candy Kane, mm -hmm. who later on, when I moved to the UK, she would marry an old rich man called Reginald <laughs> Baxter. So she became Mrs. Candy Kane Baxter. Okay. And so for many, many years in the UK uh, circuit, I was doing first doing stand-up um, clubs and then I started doing the gay bars and the cabaret circuit. Mm -hmm. And um, over the years, more and more videos of like her with this guy, this old guy, it was kind of like an Anna Nicole Smith situation. Uh, the, the old guy was played by James's father. Okay. Who, like he was an old guy with an oxygen mask in a wheelchair. And we filmed all these videos. And each night at the, when I did a show, I would have a video screen on stage. And so it was all about Candy and her rich husband and how she was trying to kill him off. And, and then uh, to, I would change, I would go behind the, the screen and do a quick change and then come out as Delia Smith or Ann Robinson or Ricky Lake or other celebrities and the act had multiple characters so it's it, kind of like your act had a storyline that went yeah, across you know, it, a lot of years yeah yeah so the the basically each episode each week it was a different sort of episode like it had the narrative had, the narrative had moved on it was constantly yeah. changing and growing and evolving um so regulars knew all that if i didn't talk about reg that how's reginald you know they would ask and um but it wasn't until 2000, it was a ways in uh, that I've been living here in the UK for 20 years. I, I would occasionally do like a little bit of Cher or a little bit of Madonna mm -hmm. um, as an, just a quick impersonation. And it wasn't until I started doing, people were saying, okay, those videos that you do in your show, 
how can I see them? Like, I, I want to show my friend in Australia or America those videos. Mm -hmm. You could only see them live. And as, as YouTube became more popular, somebody said, why don't you just put those videos up on YouTube? Like old videos, like say a video that I hadn't done in a year or two. Yeah. I hadn't played it in the club, put it on YouTube. So I started doing that, but, and I started getting views from all over the world. I would, I thought that people like my family back in America or just <laughs> a few Queens from the gay bar would watch it. I woke up one morning and a video had like 1200 views. I was like, well, that's a bit, that's a bit odd because <laughs> I've only watched it three times. Um, and then, then I realized that the, the medium, I could, I could use YouTube to tell stories that I wasn't able to do in a nightclub because the jokes that you do in a nightclub are different than what you can, how you make a nightclub audience laugh and how people laugh when they're sitting at home watching YouTube. I could do different things. Mm -hmm. So then I, then I started doing videos just for YouTube. Okay. No, it was just for YouTube. And there's a whole, I was doing all these different characters and celebrities and song parodies and lady, like Lady Gaga's, uh, uh, what was it called? Edge of Glory. I did as the whole of glory. Um, <laughs> and it was a, kind of like a, a politician getting trapped, getting uh, caught in a airport bathroom um which a couple of republican senators had been arrested for cottaging okay in their bathrooms and it had a, that whole subtext and anyway so as more as 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 they were getting more and more popular on youtube i did a video that i had i put madonna the madonna share and gaga mm -hmm. together and it was called madonna's gaga nightmare and I went to bed, I remembered it's my birthday, July 12th. I went to bed at two in the morning, uploaded the video and woke up the next morning and it had like 10,000 views. Oh, wow. And then by lunch, it was like 20,000. And then dinner time, it was like 75,000. And then I started getting messages from, you know, friends in Australia, messages from friends in America that night saying, oh, I was in the, in the gay bar and they played it on the TV screen. And then I think by the end of the week, the, the counter just stopped and, you know, it was like 750,000 views by the end wow. of the week. So then I thought, oh, I'll do a second one. <laughs> <laughs> so you turned that uh, Madonna's Gaga Nightmare into a series of videos, isn't that correct? Yeah, yeah, there's been a whole, there's, you know, there's been millions of views on those. And then, then as I started introducing other celebrities, the more characters that I did, the more people were suggesting. Okay. Have you thought about, Madonna, uh, uh, I don't know, Barbara Streisand. Have you thought about lies? Have you thought about Lana Del Rey? And um, the more celebrities I did, the more I was being challenged to do more. And the more I wanted to try to do more. And so then I, for, for many years, I was doing one video a week, every Wednesday, mm -hmm. a brand new video a week. And uh, that sort of... <laughs> That sort of, I did two tours of Australia based on, because then I started getting asked to do a live version of what I got famous for on YouTube. Mm -hmm. So I had to then start, put together a live show. And I, I used the video screens and I would, you know, I would, I would start as Madonna and then I would, there'd be a video and then I'd change, you know, change costumes and come out as Gaga and then mm -hmm. do stuff as Gaga and then there'd be another video and I'd come back as 
Barbara Streisand and Enda Share, and you know, it was a whole, it was a tried to get as many of the characters in that I could. Uh, but I did two sold out tours of Australia, even before I was on Drag Race, which is something I'm very proud of. Yeah, that's incredible. <laughs> you know, that's, that's an yeah, achievement that people, in its own. And that was part of the reason why I auditioned for Drag Race is because I remember being in, I had sold out uh, three nights in Sydney. And I was, every, every town I went to, Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, Perth, I would see posters on the wall of like, who had just appeared there. Like, oh, George Alana was here last week. And oh, there's a poster up saying, you know, Courtney Act is coming next week or somebody mm -hmm. else, Alyssa Edwards is coming next week. And my promoter told me how much the Drag Race girls were getting paid. And, I, and he said, they just do two numbers in a meet and greet. Yeah. And I said, I'm doing a nine minute show. <laughs> and he's saying, oh yeah, they fly business class. And I was like, I flew, I flew coach. And, <laughs> You know, and they were getting paid twice as much as I was getting paid. And, and I said, well, I want me some of that. So that's when I auditioned for season eight. I said, well, you know, if I could get twice as much money to only do two numbers, <laughs> I might as well do it. You had mentioned doing stand-up through the, the AIDS epidemic. How was that doing comedy through such a hard time? You had mentioned on this show that you had friends that had AIDS. Did, did comedy help you with like a coping mechanism on how to get through things in a way? Well, Kyle, I will tell you, comedy has always helped me. Good. Um, I, I, comedy has always, laughter has always helped me. Um, throwing myself into work has always helped me. Um, just in the past five weeks, two of my aunts have died and two of James's aunts have died. I'm sorry. Um, we've lost, you know, and and uh, working and cracking jokes and finding a way to laugh through tough times has always been my my coping. And fortunately, it's James's coping mechanism as well, because otherwise, <laughs> you're really inappropriate. Some of the things that he says to me, or some of the things I say to him. But so during that during that era, going back to the 1980s. Um, yes, most of my friends died. Most of the friends that I had when I was in, you know, 20 and 21, 22 uh, um, have died. Um, I still have an old a phone book, you know, like mm -hmm. a, it's a, it's a phone book that I had from that time where I just crossed out names and put dead. And it looks quite angry. If you look back, it looks like the writing was like, I was mad. Yeah. Um, but I would just like, put a box around their name and cross it out and just write dead beside it. And I was, I was mad. Um, I was mad that, that, that partially because the um, Ronald Reagan was in the white house and the conservative Republican government was doing absolutely nothing. If you think the government's inaction on this COVID-19 um, epidemic is appalling, it was even worse. They knew they wouldn't even say the word AIDS. It was a it was a very difficult time for 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 the community, and we were we were being told it was God's retribution. We were abominations. We deserved, you know, we deserved it. And that's a really difficult. Some of my friends, you know, who even if they weren't HIV positive, they drank and drugged themselves to death because they were being kicked out of their home. You know, the parents were kicking them out. You know, they were getting outed at work and then losing their job. And so drinking and drugging was a way. So there were suicides, there was accidental overdoses. There was, 
you know, a lot of unhappiness. And so for me, comedy was what's, it gave me something to focus on. It was a purpose. It was, you know, I was good at it. I really enjoyed it. But I was also doing comedy as fundraisers. We were doing lots and lots of, you know, every week we were doing a fundraiser for a different, a different charity. So it gave me an opportunity to get in front of an audience and try out new material. Because mm -hmm. one of the things with comedy is you just have to get on stage as, as often as you can. I look back at that period, you know, there was a lot of horror and there was an, but there was also, it was, it was an opportunity for me. I was being constantly asked to host events. A lot of the acts in Boston were lip sync acts and they just couldn't talk on the microphone. And famously, I'm not a lip singer. <laughs> <laughs> so I would host the, I would be the, uh, the MC, the compare. And, um, and so it was an, it was a chance. It was, a, I try to look, look back on every experience and, and find the good in it. Like there's a lot of good that's happening right now. Mm -hmm. um, despite it being a horrible situation. Yeah. Um, there are a lot of positives. Of so, course there's, there has, yeah, like you said, you have to, look at the positives in any situation. Frankly, it's the only way I, the only way I can, I have to believe that tomorrow is going to be better than yesterday because otherwise I wouldn't be able to get through today. Definitely. So I'm an optimist. So I think at the time um, that I, I think staying cheerful and upbeat is, is, you know, is kind of what, what saved me, it saved my sanity. When AIDS first happened, the, the three groups that were most affected were uh, intravenous drug users. There was a large Haitian population in on the East Coast um, of uh, intravenous drug users. So people were seeing it as, you know, those poor black people that were shooting up drugs. They, well, they had it coming. Um, but there were also hemophiliacs who were getting tainted blood transfusions. Of course, mm -hmm. they were seen as victims. Um, the rest of us had it coming. At first, it was just the gays in the bathhouses in New York City and San Francisco and large metropolitan areas. Um, those were the first people. Um, I'm just glad that the, the misinformation around HIV and AIDS has became a lot less over recent years and most people are more educated on it. Yeah. But yeah. when you say about the blood transfusions, it's still frustrating that in 2020, gay and bisexual people are still not allowed to donate blood. Oh, I know, I know. Considering um, the number of straight men who, uh, who are into, uh, you know, that are chasers. Yeah. Um, you know, they, they're married straight men that live in the suburbs that frequent certain venues or... <laughs> And those men, they can have as many partners as they want. They, because they're straight and married with children, they can donate blood. There's a lot of, you know, there are a lot of just straight people that are just having more, twice as much promiscuous sex as gay mm -hmm. men. So there's any number of people who, you know, if you just go a little bit beyond the fact that they're straight, you might find they're a much higher risk of getting an infection of some sort, an STD or syphilis or herpes or anything. Uh, you had mentioned obviously living in the US before moving to London. You'd moved to London to be with your husband, is that correct? Yeah, so uh, James back in 1986, 96, sorry, 96, James had come to, to Boston, Massachusetts uh, to work as a nanny. 
for a year. And so we met uh, like a month or two after he had moved. Mm -hmm. um, and um, we fell in love. And when his visa ran out, he had to move back to England. And I was, I wasn't going to let a good thing go. And so um, I started coming over. I'd come over like for like a week or two. Um, and we would see each other every three weeks and uh, like a month might go by and then he'd come over to the States for a week. And mm -hmm. we did that for a couple of years. Stonewall organization had successfully lobbied the home office to allow same-sex couples to be recognized in the same way that unmarried opposite sex couples were. And basically in terms of immigration policy, an unmarried couple, straight, uh, you know, opposite sex couple, mm. they could prove that they were in a long-term committed relationship akin to marriage. And I put quotations, air quotes around akin to marriage, then they could get a uh, residency visa for their partner, a partner visa. And so um, I was able to successfully prove that we had been together as a couple. Um, and the only thing keeping us apart from being a fully couple, you know, was the, the, the basically the fact that we had this at the Atlantic Ocean between yeah. us. But I was able to prove that we, you know, we were on the phone every day sending emails and, you know, uh, writing letters every day. And um, I had, I'd saved every record. Um, and, uh, so I was able to get permission to, I think it was called leave to remain was my first visa. And then okay. after a couple of years, if you're still together, then you can get indefinite leave to remain. And then after a couple more years, I was able to become a citizen. So it's, it's not a, a short process, we'll say that. No, no, it's <laughs> not cheap. It's not cheap either. <laughs> but for me, there was no choice. Like there was just, it's just something that I just, I just had to do it. Yeah. You know, I had met the person I would have moved. I would have swum to Antarctica if I had to. <laughs> Let's keep moving from um, Boston, having an established career and moving to London, a kind of a brand new city, essentially. How did you cope with establishing yourself in a brand new city? Well, the first thing I had to learn the language. It wasn't easy. Um, when I think back, um, I really didn't know anyone. I didn't have, I had very few connections. Um, but the one connection that I did have turned out to be an important connection. It was a friend of mine who has now since died of AIDS. He had come, he was from England. He had, he would come to Provincetown, Massachusetts, the resort where I performed every summer for many mm -hmm. years. He had come as a waiter and he would, he'd come like two or three years in a row. And then when he moved, when I moved over to England, he took me around to some of the clubs and theater, you know, he showed me some of the, you know, the, the acts on the scene. He introduced me to uh, legendary acts like the Dame Edna Experience, uh, Dockyard Doris, Phil Starr, some of these acts that had been going for years. Yeah. He told me these are the agents these there were like there were three really important agents that booked a lot of the drag circuit, a lot of the cabaret circuit. Each agent had like, say, ten or fifteen venues that they did the booking for. Mm -hmm. So I put together like a like a press kit with photographs and my biog and everything. Sent them out to each of these agents, and I got a phone call one day saying, "Oh, we just got your pack in the mail today." And 
I know it's short notice, but we're doing a showcase tonight in London. If you'd like to come along, you can do, I think it was five minutes, maybe seven minutes. I said it is short notice, but sure, <laughs> great. Um, and that night I went and Pam Ann had just moved from Melbourne, Australia, and she had been invited. Both of us, it was our very first London performance. Wow. And I'll be honest with you, um, most of the acts on the, the showcase were rubbish and we have never been <laughs> I, I mean, it's just the way it is. It was hosted by a comedian by the name of Jason Wood. He had a drag character called Cher Travesty. He had been the compare. And in the audience that night was a drag act by the name of Sandra, Sandra London. Mm -hmm. Sandra is legendary for having performed at the, Royal, at the Two Brewers every Sunday night at 11.30 for 30 years, maybe? She was a big name on the scene. And she had seen me that night at this showcase. And I did really well, I have to be honest with you. I, I know I did well um, because the, 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 most of the people in the audience just had a stony face. They were just industry bookers and venue owners and they just were miserable but I got them to laugh. It, it wasn't an enjoyable experience, but they, cause they just weren't a good audience. Yeah. They just really deadpan and, and they had a stick up their ass. But um, I knew I had done well. And I, I, I said, like I said, I made a few people laugh. And the next day I got a phone call from, Sa um, from Sandra saying, my dear, you were brilliant. Oh, I thought you were so funny. And uh, if you don't mind, I gave you a phone number. This, that's my impersonal. <laughs> I gave your number to a couple of agents, my dear. I got a phone call from, from an agency called Studio One. And they were the most, they had, they booked gala bingo halls and Butlins and Pontins holiday camps, as well as a whole bunch of gay venues. And they said, um, Sandra said that you were good. And if, if she says you're good, you know, cause she was the number, like sort of like the most famous act on mm -hmm. the scene that will, you know, we, we trust her judgment. And so they started giving me bookings. It was really one of those situations where up until that point, I'd been in the country for about six weeks. The next day, my diary started filling up. It happened really quickly. All of a sudden I was working regularly all over the UK and never looked back. That's impressive. It really is. And obviously that led you to becoming a four-time Boys Award winner for Best Cabaret. That is correct. You've done your research. Well, <laughs> four, four times gold Best Cabaret. But before that, there were um, several bronzes, a couple of silvers. And last year, uh, I, I won a couple of golds in a row. And then last year, I won a silver again. Okay. So yeah, I have won quite a few uh, cabaret awards, which I'm, I'm very proud of, yeah. Uh, when was the most recent one that you actually won the gold? So 19 was silver, 18 gold, 17 gold, 16 gold, 15 silver. You've, you've consistently always kind of been in, we'll say, the top cabaret performers in London for a lot of years. Well, you can say that, I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, it's fair to, it's fair to, yeah, it's fair to, hey, I'm not going to be, um, you might as, if you can't, if you can't promote yourself, how in the hell are you going to promote somebody else? Can I get an amen up in here? Amen. Um, from arriving on the scene pretty quickly, I made a name for myself. And the reason for that is because I arrived on the scene fully formed. Mm -hmm. 
I had had years of experience in the United States. I did something different that nobody else was doing. I was doing when most acts would just come out on stage in one outfit and sing songs for an hour and tell jokes for an hour. I was doing quick changes and playing multiple characters and doing celebrities and doing song parodies. If something happened in the news with a politician, I would write a parody song about it, put together a costume and have it in the show, you know, that weekend. Yeah. Anything that was popular culture, James has a very funny comedy writer. There would be jokes in the show about anything that Madeline went missing. We had jokes. I often get asked, who, you know, who, what is your biggest in comedy influence? And mm -hmm. I grew up watching Saturday Night Live in the States, and yes. it's not so well known over here, but it was hugely influential to me and to a whole generation of comedians. You know, if, if Saturday Night Live didn't happen, you wouldn't have had there's dozens and dozens of top stand-ups. You wouldn't have Jimmy Fallon, Seth Meyers. You wouldn't have Chris Rock, Eddie Murphy. I could name a hundred celebrity, you know, comedians and movies and, and everything, but that show was hugely influential. And this is what influenced my comedy in terms of celebrity. Um, oftentimes, because the cast of like 10 or 12 core actors, they weren't going to always look like every celebrity they pay, played. Some of them were really successful and some of them, it was more about um, the comedy and the jokes and the stories as opposed mm -hmm. to looking exactly like the celebrity. And so that's, that, that's what influenced my YouTube channel. I know I don't look that much like Madonna or look like Cher, but the jokes that I tell, that's the writing and yeah. the acting is far more important than am I the best share impersonator in the world? No, I look nothing like her. <laughs> but you know that I'm who I'm mean to be. Yes. And the jokes are funny. And yeah. that's the approach that I took is it didn't matter if I looked like them or sounded like them, were the jokes funny? And mm -hmm. that 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 Saturday Night Live sort of ethos is what has been hugely influential in my career. Jumping back to your YouTube channel. Um Obviously, you've had massive success with that. In 2015, you had a bit of controversy in regards to one of your characters. So you had a character called Laquisha Jones. People had accused you of racist tendencies, uh, and there was even a petition signed um, for you to be removed from the London Royals Vauxhall Theatre lineup. How was that time in your life? You're coming and looking at this as a comedian and finding the funny side in this. Did you ever think it would end up in a situation like that? Most of most of the time that I've talked about this, it's been in 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 the press, and a twenty minute interview gets cut down to two lines. Yeah. Um. So to give you the full context of of how the character was born, and I remember I did the character for 12, 12 or fourteen years. Yeah without a single complaint, um, performed for celebrities, was on television, was on the radio. Um, I did it, I did it, she was in a show, um, a TV show, which I won a Royal Television Society Award for. And um, remember, I was playing dozens of characters, something like 70 or 80 characters on my YouTube channel. Mm -hmm. um, and the character had been invented as the guest on a celeb uh, on Ricky Lake show. Okay. So, uh, as a part of my stand-up routine, she 
was very much like the girls you would see on the Ricky Lake show saying, oh, no, Miss Ricky, and going off on on Ricky and saying things like, you know, I will cut you, I will pull your weave out. And um, she had a whole big long backstory that um, she was mixed race. Mm -hmm. And this was the era of Ali G. Um, this was the era of white chicks. This was the era of, you know, we're talking about uh, Little Britain. It was, it was, it was about the jokes. It was about the story. And it was for me as a, as an entertainer, I thought I was showing range. Mm -hmm. um, I made sure that the character was always the hero, wasn't an underdog, wasn't, was never the butt of the jokes, always had the funniest lines and always had the biggest comebacks. I used the character as on the, on the London cabaret scene to filter my own stories about being a fish out of water having moved to the UK, not knowing the culture. Like I said, never had a single complaint in a nightclub, hosted uh, headline prides, was on the cover of many magazines and everything. And um, I was aware that I was playing a character that was, you know, that was mixed race. I was doing stand-up in her in uh, doing like a half hour stand-up act in comedy clubs, headlining on the bill with some of the best black comedians in the UK. Mm -hmm. um, people like Stephen K. Amos and Ava, Vide Ava Vidal and um, Ninia Benjamin and being asked to appear on lineups with an all black cast. And they were, they was, they, they were saying, oh my God, she's so funny. Oh, you're, and I was doing a Thursday night in Birmingham which is probably probably about 20 to 25 percent of my audience every thursday night they were black and they were or black and mixed race and mm. they would bring their friends to the show because this character they recognized this character they understood this character and they were saying bringing their friends oh my god you've got to see this comedian yeah when a petition started and I was all of a sudden being called a horrible racist. And the thing is, as soon as you're called a racist, it's kind of like being called a Nazi Ku Klux Klan white supremacist, which is the furthest thing from who I am as a person. And it was hugely hurtful because never was there any intent to mock a group of people. Yeah. Um, that was never my, never my intent. I, I look back at at a lot of the comedy and a lot of the jokes and a lot of the stories I told. And oftentimes, because Candy Kane was the character I was doing the most, oftentimes I would do the jokes first as Candy Kane because she was working more often. And then I would do the joke as, I'll just call her Miss Jones, Eljo. It came out as a surprise to me that I would be vilified when after 14 years of doing the character, I thought people understood that there was no malice but in retrospect, you know, looking back, I suppose the times were changing. When I read all of the comments of the from the people who signed the petition, I was horrified. I was I was mortified. I I felt like, wow, people who have never seen the character are hurt at the very idea of the character. I was deeply ashamed that maybe there had been people who had seen the character live 
who never complained, but maybe they did find something offensive about it. And mm -hmm. so I decided, I mean, the petition, I, again, it, it happened on a memorable date. Like I said, my first YouTube video that went viral was on my birthday. Um, the petition landed on James and I, it's, it landed on our anniversary. That was a Friday. And by, by mid-afternoon on Saturday, after talking to a lot of my comedian friends who were black, some of them were saying, oh, just ignore it, just ignore it, it'll go away. But I said, you know what? I, I can never do this character ever again because to do so would be an act of defiance. If people who have never even seen it are saying they're hurt by the idea of it, if you're saying you're hurt, and I continued, then that would make me a horrible person. Yeah. Apolog I apologize profusely. I, I've apologized many, many times, and I will continue to apologize, and I'll apologize now. I feel terrible that a character that was, that, you know, was born in a, in a short sketch and then grew, grew more and more popular hurt people. Or just even, like I said, the girl who wrote the petition had never seen the act. She had never seen my YouTube videos. She had never seen me live at the Royal Vauxhall Tavern. I was being accused of doing blackface at the Royal Vauxhall Tavern when, um, and that's the thing that surprised me. It was like, um, if you've seen the show, you know that I go from Cher to this character in two minutes. So there's photographs of me as this character standing beside people and I'm three shades lighter than I said, how could they accuse me of doing blackface? But then, you know, I full, I completely understand that if you think that the intent of the character is to mock, I'm guilty in terms of, yes, this is a character I played and it's not easy talking about it, but um, the, the belief is that I was punching down. That's the assumption that I was punching down. But the fact is the exact same jokes, the exact same songs, the exact same stories that I was telling, um, I then created this character, Lisa Q. Jones, um, and she's the exact same character. She's mm -hmm. this other character's cousin on her mother's side. And even with the magnifying glass of attention on me as a result of the petition, um, I've not had one single complaint for telling the exact same jokes, singing the exact same songs, telling the exact same stories. And beca it's because Lisa is blonde haired with blue eyes. It's the exact same costume, exact same accessories, um, very similar makeup. So I know that the stories, the jokes, the words coming out of my mouth weren't racist. Yeah. It was the fact that I was calling myself Laquisha Jones. Some of the images that I created, you know, she's, she looks like a particular kind of girl that we've seen many times. I know um, that words matter and that I have a responsibility as a performer and as and as an artist to if I if I have any criticism to listen and if somebody says just the fact that you're calling yourself Laquisha Jones hurts me well it's a, it was an easy fix and I wish the petition had been started 20 years ago you know um, I wish one of the comics that I was working with had said, you know what, this character works, Charlie. You just have to change the name and wig. Um, <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, yeah. Uh, and, 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 I, and I could have avoided hurting people that I care about, you know? Yeah.
Um, so anyway, that's, that's that era of my life. And, um, you know, I know that it, it haunts me. It's on my Wikipedia profile. Um, and if anybody listening to this, um, is hurt by the idea that I once played this character, then I'm, I'm, I'm truly sorry. It was never my intent to hurt anybody, but if it hurt them or you listening, then I am sorry. Yeah. I think it's, it's good to hear from you directly rather than maybe reading it in a, an article or an interview somewhere, what someone can misconstrued or just take snippets from you. Yeah. Well, the, the main thing is that had the girl who started the petition contacted me and said, this hurts me, she's, she's an intelligent and astute social activist. She would have been able to make her case quite convincingly. And it would have been the kind of thing that, like, I do take, I take direction really well. I take notes really well. I take criticism really well. And if she had said, hey, times have changed, Charlie, what worked 10 years ago doesn't work now, I would have listened and I would have, I would have changed it. The kind of comedy that I do now is very different from what I did 10 years ago. Times change and people evolve. So for you to take such quick action and kind of get rid of the offensive part of the character that people would have said was yeah. offensive is, is an applaud and Kyle, to you. Do you want to know one of the real ironies of it? As popular and as much work as I, as I had had as Le Laquisha, when I changed the act to Lisa Q. Jones and she had blonde hair and blue eyes, the blonde hair, blue eyed version of this character got a lot more work. Yeah. Which does not speak volumes about society. No. It really doesn't. Um, well, we will go on to Drag Race. So obviously everyone knows that you're on season nine. Season nine was a, a very, very talented bunch of, of queens. The first episode where no one went home and you had Gaga to work with. And yeah. you got praised for your, your Brit Awards recreation. I did. How was that working with? Well... What was, what was surreal about the whole experience was, A, I was the oldest contestant, still am the oldest contestant ever to compete. Mm -hmm. So I was hugely flattered to, uh, to have just been cast. And yeah. previously, the oldest contestant would always go home first. I thought, okay, if I'm going home first, if that's what it is, um, then I'm gonna look as amazing as I can and do as well as I can on the one episode that I'm gonna get a chance to be on. Yeah. Um, when Gaga walked into the workroom and I, re I was the person who realized it was really her. Now, what you, what you see is 30 seconds. What happened was much, much longer, but I was the one that actually said to her, uh, cause she said, what, what have you guys been talking about before she came into the workroom? I said, oh, mm -hmm. we were talking about our boyfriends and our partners. And then I looked her straight in the eye and I said, do you have a boyfriend? And is his name Taylor Kinney? <laughs> who is who she was dating at the time. Yeah. And she just stopped. And then she lifted her mask off and she looked me right in the eye and she said, I knew it was going to be you who clocked me. So she knew that I was Charlie Hydes, the guy who had been impersonating her on YouTube for years. She had already watched a lot of my YouTube videos. She had sent me flowers with a note to the Royal Vox wow. Tavern. 
um, uh, like a year or two before, my friend Perry Meek, who designs her costumes, he had shown her all my videos. He had designed the outfit that she was wearing on Drag Race. And okay. he was behind the mirror in the workroom, watching it all unfold. So he had gone through the cast with her, like saying, that one's this, this one's that, that one's that, that's Charlie Hyde's the guy that does you on YouTube and everything. And she said, oh my God, that's him. So um, when, what you didn't see was after she took off the mask and we all talked and she hugged me, there is some photographs of her hugging me and laughing with me and stuff like that. And as they were moving the cameras around, I'm thinking, bitch hates me. I'm already the oldest. If she has a say, I'm going home. I just thought, you know, she's smiling, but she probably hates me. Everything I've ever done or said about her on YouTube, I am going home. So yeah, what you probably don't know is we were, that episode, most times the first episode is, takes place over two days. Yeah. We, we had to do it all in one day. So we were in drag since five in the morning. Now, remember, I had just flown over from, from, from London. Whoa. And then that we were filming the next day. So I was jet lagged <laughs> and then told you have to be up at five in the morning. And then we were filming till, till after midnight because they had to, Gaga was only available one day. Poor Alexis was in a cat suit and all tucked in. She didn't pee from like seven in the morning till like midnight. She was in pain. Season nine had that, that strange uh, cheerleading challenge. Um, oh, yeah. Did you ever expect that you would have to do something so physical on the show? No, no. Um, that's They've never done anything like that ever again because so many of us no. were injured. Um, so ma- there were so many injuries and, and I think two or three people went to hospital. Um, it took place, what you, what you see, uh, it started, we started filming that on a Thursday morning and uh, we, fil- we rehearsed all day Thursday, all day Friday, half a day Saturday, had Sunday off, which I, we rehearsed in our room. And then the next day we, um, we did a dress rehearsal a couple of times where they plotted out the camera movements mm-hmm. and we had to do it several times then. And then we had to get into drag and then they shot it two more times and they moved the cameras around. Um, so it was shot twice. Um, yeah. It was much. It was a much longer routine than you saw. Um, they cut out about half of it. Uh, wow. So it was really, really intense. Ultimately, once they broke us up into teams and they, they had Shea Coulee, they had me lifting Shea Coulee. Had I been the one lifted and not having to lift Shea, because I had to lift Shea. Shea's half my age yeah. and I had to lift him like 50 times, 60 times. Um, over the, Jesus. you know, over the course of the, it would have been, everything would have worked <laughs> a lot different. <laughs> it would have been, it would have been a lot different, but, um, you know, Hey, I look at it. I, I wish you could see the whole routine because we worked really hard on it and it looked really, really good. It was really sharp, but for television purposes, they edited it down. What I did as a 52 year old, um, I, I did very well in that, in that routine. Um, and I looked amazing in my white, uh, my white gown for the yeah. party, and I got to meet the B-52s. So despite the fact that I was in a lot of pain, so Aja had gone to hospital, Cynthia Lee Fontaine went to hospital, and Eureka went to hospital. But I figured as the oldest, if I complained, 
they could say they could eliminate me they could say well, yeah. she's injured we're sending her home like they sent eureka home yeah so i didn't want to make but the judges knew they saw me duct taping my ribs in the in the workroom um do you think if you hadn't have had to do that cheerleading challenge um your infamous lip sync wouldn't have happened absolutely yeah and if if um this is the point is uh people i didn't refuse to lip sync i just couldn't move the princess challenge which i had the best gown absolutely without a doubt fight me on it we were told it was a design challenge and i think my design and execution of that was the best and as a matter of fact what you didn't see is as soon as the challenge was over trinity won we came into the dressing room we all gave her applause and she said thank you but before i say anything can we just all say acknowledge how amazing charlie's gown is oh, that's and nice. trinity basically got them all all of them except two people who were in the top two with her who just shuffled around and looked at their feet but the rest you know everyone did you know the other contestants all said oh yeah it's a gorgeous gown charlie so do you think that you should have been in the top for that episode yeah i should have and you want to know something shea coulee should have been it, it should, in the top yeah that's why aja was mad that's why aja said you're beautiful you look like a model you look like a linda evangelista because um valentina's costume was so basic and took yeah, her five minutes and none of us were impressed with it aja was just saying what we were all thinking Shea Coulee spent hours and hours and hours on his gown and it was stunning yeah. um and it wasn't it, was. it wasn't in the top and as a matter of fact um Shea was rushing against the time Shea was like had like three minutes to spare because the gown was so complicated it had a hoop skirt mm. it was it was technically it was 10 times more challenging and 10 times better than than Valentina's. So it should have been me and at least me and um and Shay in the top two, but definitely not Valentina. I love Valentina and she is beautiful and she does look like a model. <laughs> but just not she shouldn't have been in the top for that challenge. Not for design challenge, no. Well we'll carry on and go to the, the morning talk show challenge. Yeah. Um this is the episode where you do lip sync. In that challenge, there seemed to be a bit of that you were over-prepared. In the, in the challenge, in front of Ross Matthews, I maybe had about seven minutes of comedy. 95% of them got big laughs. At one point, Ross snorted Diet Coke out his nose. Um, Trinit, uh, uh, Cynthia and I had, they showed the challenge of us working. What they didn't show was how successfully we nailed it. Yeah. We were very funny and we made the crew laugh. We made our conte fellow contestants laugh. We made Ross Matthews laugh. Yes, I flubbed a couple of lines. Yes, there were a couple of things that didn't land, but I got some of the biggest laughs of the whole thing. The way they portrayed that then with the edit of your interview as well with Naya Rivera. They made it seem like you had cut her off mid-sentence and just wanted to carry on and finish well, the challenge. The is, is that... Okay, look, so the point that I'm making is once they've decided that I'm in the bottom two and then I go home, they can mm. change, they can choose which bits to show. 
Yeah. We all stepped on each other's lines. We all made mistakes. We all got laughs. Mm -hmm. But if you show me having three times where I didn't get a laugh and then show the only three times that Peppermint laughed, that justified keeping her in. Yeah. But the fact of the matter is, um, backstage, we were all, they were all saying, oh, Charlie, you're safe. There's no way you're in the bottom two. You were so funny. Cynthia was like, oh my God, you were so funny, Charlie. You know, after, after we filmed it, mm-hmm. they were like, oh my God, you were so good. You nailed it. Well done. So I didn't think I was going to be in the bottom two at all because I knew I looked amazing. My runway yeah. and Peppermint's outfit was one of the worst outfits to ever walk the runway. So yeah. I didn't think I was going to be in the bottom three, let alone in yeah. the bottom two. Let alone going home. <laughs> <laughs> like you said, they, they, they can edit the show whichever way they want and portray hey, anyone. And that, I'm not, I'm not saying I'm blaming the edit. I'm saying I shouldn't have been in the bottom two. The other thing that, that, you know, it's just they're making it, they're making a TV show. So the whole drama of who do you want to not pick to go home, that could have ended very differently because Trinity did not want to pick me. What you didn't see, and I'm not saying blaming the edit, I'm saying the edit didn't show when they said, Trinity, who are you going to pick? She said, I can't. It took 10 minutes. She kept on going, I can't, I can't do it. I can't do it. This is so hard. I can't, I can't say. Rue finally said, girl, we're sitting down and you're standing there in high heels. We can sit here all day. Oh. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Okay. Exactly. So sit, Trinity finally just went, because the judges had given me a few critiques, Trinity said, the outfit is gorgeous, but only based on the fact that the judges have given you a few critiques, I'm choosing Charlie. It could have gone another way. You know, if she had said, well, Peppermint is my teammate and we were the team captains and Peppermint's outfit is horrible, it could have ended up very differently. You know, but the fact of the matter is, um, I was, I was, I walked the runway after Peppermint and I adore Peppermint. I love her. Um, But I saw her outfit and I thought, oh girl, she's going to be in trouble. And then I, I had, she went up because the back behind the stage, behind the, uh, the, what's it called? Behind the, um, the state, there's a set of stairs that goes up to the runway um, from Mm -hmm. backstage. And I was behind her and as she walked up ahead of me and I saw like this lumpy bumpy weird shit going on with her dress underneath like it just looked and Ross I think Ross picked her up on it that it didn't look good and he made some comment about the panties whatever I remember thinking god they're gonna rip her to shreds thinking back on that outfit it was terrible (laughs) but anyway hey you know it's a tv show and at the end of the day we're 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 analyzing in, in, in micro detail something that happened, um, what, four years ago. I've said this before. There were several different times in the show when I was on the four four episodes I was on, they could have gone in any number of different directions with how, what stories they chose to tell. Because one one of the things that was happening during the first couple of episodes is Eureka and Farah were a really funny double act in the dressing room. And they would go out and have smoked. Yeah, there was this whole, could have been a whole storyline about this really, because because Pheromone is like two foot two and Eureka is six foot ten. You know, it was this really <laughs> odd little, but they were 
they were the best of friends, thick as thieves. And um, it was, and I was sure that that was going to be a whole storyline. And when it's, when I started watching episode one, two, three, four, it's like, oh, it's not they, there. They, they didn't show any of that. That's the thing. They're making a TV show. And um, I'm, I'm proud that at 52, I looked stunning every time I walked the runway and that, um, in that, you know, that I'm part of that legacy. Um, I have no bitterness or jealousy or resentment. I knew, people mm. said that I gave up. It's just, I knew that I was in pain. I knew I was having trouble just walking the runway. I knew, okay, now you're being asked to throw yourself around and do, you know, cartwheels and, and uh, um, <laughs> you know, to win, <laughs> to win a lip thing for your life, you have to, you know, and I just knew I was on empty. I was in pain, I hadn't mm. slept. It's like, uh, this and 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 you know at the best of times lip sync just isn't my isn't my thing i just knew that as soon as i was in the bottom two it's like shit i'm it's kind of like you get a broken leg and you're being asked to run a marathon um you know it's like you can't it's just i knew i just thought if i gave Brittany dead from dead you know <laughs> <laughs> dead behind the eyes, you know, vintage Britney. It, it is what it is. And and people, there are some people say, yeah, I'm so proud of you for saying that you were, you're refusing to, so it's like, I, that's not, that's not it. It's not, it's, I, it's that I couldn't move. Not that I couldn't move my lips. I moved my lips, um, mm. <laughs> but I couldn't, I just couldn't give the fight that was needed. Um, and I knew that. I just knew that the second that my name was called, it's like, oh shit. And that, what's weird is I kept on saying to myself, great, Peppermint's outfit is horrible. I know I made Ross Matthews laugh and, and I got some of the biggest laughs while we filmed that, that, that thing the day before. I thought if I can just get through the weekend, if I, cause it was a Friday and I thought if I can just, you know, if I can get through the week, if I can be safe and then mm -hmm. have Saturday and Sunday off, and then Monday, I'll feel, you know, I'll feel better. Um, and yeah. that, that was my hope. Well, unfortunately, we didn't get there. And but it changed my life. And now, now we're talking. Exactly. And we wouldn't be here if that wasn't the fact. But once the, the show had been announced and the, the Make the Queens and stuff was released, how did you find the fan reception towards yourself? In the early, uh, until I was eliminated, I was a, uh, hugely popular. Um, I was had one of the most successful Meet the Queens. Um, the feedback was phenomenal. Um, my my Meet the Queen was one of, was one of the funniest, and um, and I had a huge. I went from having like uh, eight thousand followers on Instagram to like one hundred fifty thousand followers in you know in Instagram like really really quickly. Nobody knew on, you know, a lot of people that watched me on YouTube didn't know that I was 52. Um, and that yeah. was something that came out. Uh, and there were a lot of really, really funny memes about, you know, they, people put me in pictures beside dinosaurs and, and hieroglyphics <laughs> and the Egyptian, you know, it was really funny. I mean, some of it, most of it was just really good natured and funny. A couple of them were mean, like, you know, why did they cast an old lady? I would look at their pictures and like they were, they might've been 16, you know, they didn't look as good as I looked at 52, so. <laughs> and since the show, what is kind of your, your highlight experience that you've been able to do because of that experience? Oh, well, I got to, I got to tour Australia, you know, two more times. Um, I had done the two tours uh, from my YouTube days and then I got to mm -hmm. do 
you know, I got to perform for 20,000 people at Montreal Pride. Um, you know, wow. I toured, I did a Queens of Comedy tour with Bianca Del Rio and Lady Bunny, who I'd worked with, I'd worked with Bunny 20 years before and had worked with Bunny many times over the years, but um, I worked with uh, that tour with Jackie Beat and uh, with Alyssa and um, Katya. That was, that was a huge career high. You know, performing in theaters with 2,500 screaming fans, um, yeah. you know, for, I don't know, eight or 10 day tour. That was, that was pretty cool. Doing tours like that, I think, is so impressive to fill an auditorium of like-minded drag fans that are just there to be entertained. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was, they were, the, the fans were amazing. And, and what was weird is a lot of those girls there, they were there for Bianca and Alyssa. And then I, I got so many comments afterwards saying, oh my God, I thought Charlie was just going to walk out and stand there. Um, like, like, <laughs> like I got... <laughs> How do you think, do you think I got cast on Drag Race by sending in an audition tape where I just stood there? <laughs> you think Brew chose me because that's all I can do? You know, they, they had really low expectations and uh, the number of comments that I got after was, oh my God. Cause I was the only one actually who really did quote a stand-up set. Bunny and Jackie sang comedy songs Alyssa did a lip sync thing. Katya did this weird stream of consciousness, Katya. What I actually did was a, like a stand-up comedy routine, like a, like because mm -hmm. that's my background. So I just, I figured, you know, it's, it's called the Queens of Comedy Tour. And, and Jackie and Bunny were fabulous, you know, but um, they were doing songs that they had done a hundred times. I had done, I did material that I had just written, you know, like a week or two before. Um, that was very topical. Again, it was in the moment, and it was it was about the tour. Each city I went to, I had material about, I had material about the tour and about the city and stuff like that. It was you know from a stand-up comedy point of view. And so when 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 someone with low expectations is raving, saying, "Oh my God, you were the big surprise! You were the surprise hit! You were you were you were my favorite!" That's you know to me, I was I was very very pleased, very pleased. It's always nice to have unexpected fans, yeah. people that are that you can. Surprise. Well, some people were saying, you know, I, I was prepared to not like you, um, but then uh, I was surprised by how good you were. So that's always that's yeah. nice. Obviously, during this this strange pandemic quarantine times, we can't um, go out and do our usual gigs. So is there anything that you're doing at the minute to keep yourself busy in your drag career? Well, about a year ago, I got asked to host a bingo night and I hadn't done bingo in like 20 years. And so I had the night off and I said, OK, well, that sounds like fun. You know, you'll pay me and I'll do bingo. And um, and <laughs> I didn't expect it to be very busy. And the, the tickets sold out like they sold out in four days and it was two weeks in advance of the gig, three weeks in advance mm -hmm. of the gig. And, um, and when we did, when we did it, because, because my background is comedy and I hadn't been to a bingo, I've never been to an English bingo, never seen anybody mm -hmm. play bingo in the UK, never been to a bingo hall. I just called numbers and cracked <laughs> jokes and made the audience laugh and they loved it. And the, 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 the venue owner was like, Oh my God, we have to, you know, you have to come back. And so over the past year, I started doing more and more. Every single bingo I've done sold out and they were getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And I had a whole big tour booked for March, April, May, June. And then the, the lockdown happened. 
And I was like, oh my God, I'm going to refund all these tickets. I'm going to sit home and do nothing. And then for about 24 hours, I felt bad about it. And then I just said, well, you know what? I'm going to figure out a way to do bingo online. And so within the lockdown was announced on a Friday by Sunday morning, I had a bingo um, promoted and, and we, by I think 7 PM Sunday night of that first weekend of lockdown, that was even before, because it was the next day that Boris on the Friday, the clubs and the nightclubs and bars were shut down. And then on the Monday, yeah. Boris Johnson said, you can't leave your house. Sunday night, yeah. I had a really fun bingo night. And then I said, okay, let's do it again next Sunday. Oh, let's do it Wednesday. And that one sold out. So for the past, what, how long has it been? Seven and a half years we've been on lockdown? <laughs> Feels like that. So I've been, I've been doing bingos, bingos online. And then after doing, um, for, I was, I was doing them on Sunday night for, um, in the UK, which is uh, two in the afternoon in New York City and is 11 a.m. in Los Angeles, I had a bunch of Americans say, oh, can you do one at a better time for us? So I said, okay, on a mm -hmm. Friday night, I can do midnight in the UK, which is 7 p.m. in New York, 4 p.m. in Los Angeles. And that sold out really, really fast. So then my friends in Los Angeles said, well, 4 p.m. is good, but 7 p.m. in Los Angeles would be better. So I said, okay, Fine, I'll stay up till three in the morning and I'll do one at three in the morning. So that's this Friday night. So I'm doing at midnight, I'm doing a show for the East Coast. And at three in the morning, I'm doing a show for the West Coast. And both of those shows have sold out. It looks as though bingo is what is going to keep me. I did have an offer to do one for Australia. And I said, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. I'm not. <laughs> I'm not getting up at five in the morning to do one at seven in the morning. And do you have any other upcoming projects other than your? Well, who your knows what's going to happen with you know how long we're going to be in lockdown for? It's so at the, at the moment, bingo is what's keeping me busy. Um, but then, as soon as the lockdown is over, I'll be back um, on the you know on the, the gay cabaret scene. I've got I've got my regular residencies like at the Two Brewers in Clapham and the Royal Vauxhall Tavern. I've got a whole bunch of theater theater shows booked for the autumn and Christmas, you know, that, that whole season. And so we're hoping that the theater, when the theaters are allowed, we have, we have a feeling that what they're going to do is they're going to say, you can only open at 50% occupancy, um, mm. which will be bizarre to look out to a room of, you know, a theater and see every other seat empty. We think that the clubs will be opened up probably say, you know, bars, clubs, restaurants based on square footage or something. They'll have some sort of guideline where the clubs are only open at 25% occupancy at first. So mm -hmm. as soon as they're open, as soon as the year now open it, you know, the opening is announced, I'm going to be, it'll be nice to wear heels again. I haven't worn heels in seven weeks. <laughs> I've, been, I've been doing all, have to get used I've been doing to all my shows naked from the waist down. <laughs> That's efficient. So you yeah. don't have to dress yeah. the waist down when you're not only seen from I'm the in, waist up. I'm in slippers and sweatpants from the waist down and from the waist up, I'm in full drag. <laughs> And how can the, the listeners support you during this time? Do you have any merchandise? Where can they buy the tickets for upcoming uh, shows? They can follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'm always posting the links to my shows. They can go to my, they can go to my website, dragqueen.bingo. I didn't even know there was a .bingo. I knew there was .net, .co.uk, .com, yeah, .org. 
Um, but I found out there was dot bingo and I said, I'm having that. So um, <laughs> drag queen dot bingo, and then they can click there's uh there's a link worth, I think it says events and it takes them right to my, um, to my out savvy page that sells all the tickets for my various events. Hey, if they're up, you know, if they, if they, if they're a night owl and they're up at 3 AM on a Friday night, and they want to play along. It's us style bingo. So on Friday okay. nights I do us style bingo. And I have a lot of, I have a lot of people from England playing um, the U.S. style bingo, because it's new to them. So we do U.S. style bingo on Friday. Then on Sunday, we do um, British. Because there's not, I don't know if you know this, there's 90 bingo. balls in British bingo. There's only 75 balls in uh, UK and U.S. bingo. Did you know that? Oh. Yeah. No, you there you go. Every day. That's my lesson for today. If anybody wants to play with my balls, they're more than welcome to. Or if they want me to, if they want to, if they want to book me to do a private party, I'm doing corporate gigs. Uh, I'm doing because a lot of companies they had they had a pride budget for their like their LGBT organization at their at the corporation mm. or the business. So because of all the prides are canceled, they're hiring me to do um, to do their pride events for their LGBT organization, and and we're we're doing bingos on zoom and webex so if anybody has a corporation or a business and wants me to do a private birthday party anybody who wants to play with my balls is more than welcome to i'm also well you can you know i'm available on cameo um to do to do so okay. just go to cameo forward slash charlie hides and i do greetings and birthday messages and i tell people that you know, like your boyfriend wants to break up with you, but he doesn't have the courage to do it. So I'll do it for you because he <laughs> says that you're a lousy lay and you never made him come. He faked it every time. Can you let the listeners know your social media handles so they can follow yeah, you? Yeah, I'm Charlie Hides TV on Facebook. I'm Charlie Hides TV on Instagram. I'm Charlie Hides TV on Twitter. I'm Charlie Hides TV on YouTube and I'm Charlie Hides TV on Grindr. No, um, yeah. It's on, <laughs> on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, I'm Charlie Hides TV. And we will put all of the links in the description of the podcast. And as always, you can follow us on Instagram at Don't F It Up and my personal Instagram at Cal Divine Clark. Um, Charlie, I just wanted to thank you very much for joining me today and taking the time out of your afternoon to sit and chat with me for two hours. <laughs> Was it two hours? Yeah. Imagine that. An American drag queen. Able, <laughs> Doesn't feel like it. An American drag queen being able to talk about themselves for two hours. Who would have thought? <laughs> um, I hope you stay safe and healthy during this lockdown. And hopefully we can get it over and done with so we can get back out in the road and see you performing again soon. We're back into nightclubs where we belong. Yes. Thank you very much for having me. Anytime. I, I, I thank you so much for taking so much time and going into so much detail like you didn't have to do um but it's it's nice hearing everything coming directly from you rather than reading some interview that someone's edited down well feel free to edit this whole thing down to 20 minutes <laughs> oh definitely not <laughs> we've got too much too much quality content to make this 20 minutes well you've got low standards <laughs> um uh, charlie i just want to say thank you very much and i hope you have a lovely afternoon Thank you very much. Bye.